You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. We are going to be in Luke chapter 14 this morning. We're going to look at the entirety of Luke 14, as usual, probably taking more of a bite than I can chew, or maybe than than you can chew, I don't know, but... uh, I figure, hey, what do I have to lose, right? So you get mad at me all you want. Um, no, but on that note, uh, we are uh, just really happy to have Rory and Lindsay uh, here with us this morning and just stoked for what God's going to do uh, through them as they uh, come here and Rory takes over as uh, lead pastor. And we're going to work together for about a month um, starting basically today and uh, we'll be um, <clears throat> just kind of transitioning together, a lot of things to get done, and, and then uh, he'll be taking over uh, in the middle of August. So excited about that, excited to have you here, Rory, and um, I hope you guys are excited as well for what God has, and uh, chiefly what he has for us this morning, because we can only uh, take each day at a time. We get ahead of ourselves sometimes, so let's just concentrate on what he wants to speak to us uh, this morning. And we're going to be in Luke 14. If you have a Bible, if you don't, there are some back there. And I want to ask you guys a couple questions in starting. And that is, do you know that Jesus has the best possible life for you? Do you know that? Do you realize that in Jesus you find meaning, purpose, and fulfillment? And do you understand that trying to find your identity apart from Jesus will only lead to discouragement, despair, And finally, destruction. And probably, just because there's a really low turnout right now for this service, I I know all of you. And, I mean, let's just be honest. This is kind of pathetic, isn't it? That's all right. We'll we'll deal with it. Uh, But I know all of you. So I'm sure all of you are saying, yeah, I believe in that. I agree with that. I mentally assent to that. But the question really is, are you experiencing that? Not just mentally, not just in your mind, but are you experiencing it in your life? And maybe your answer was no. Maybe you you aren't sure if Jesus has the best possible life for you. And if your answer was no this morning, then, then I want you, I hope that you would embrace The life that Jesus has for you. Because it's not just about saying yes. Because obviously this is church. And the Sunday school answer is to say yes. Jesus has the best life for me. But it's about really experiencing his life. Because Jesus said I have come. That you might have life. And have it more abundantly. So when we see our life as really mediocre, when, when our life is entrenched in sin, when our life is being defined by something other than Jesus, then we're not experiencing his life. And then the question would be, why? What is keeping you from that? And it's really simple. What's keeping you from embracing his life, whether you are a believer mentally, you assent And say, yes, he has the best life for me. Or whether you aren't and you say, no, I don't believe that. 
The, the thing that's keeping you from that life is the fact that Jesus is calling you to forsake all in order to receive it. And see, it's a difficult life to embrace. This life that Jesus has for you is not easy. In fact, the Bible says it's narrow and it's hard and few find it. Because if it was easy, everybody would do it. I mean, if it was just like, hey, do you want eternal life? Do you want peace? Do you want joy? Do you want fulfillment? Yeah, sign me up. And that's what we kind of present it as, isn't it? It's, it's presented like a sales pitch. Do you want peace? Well, sure. Do you want joy? Well, of course. You want fulfillment? Yeah. You want forgiveness? You want to be saved from hell? And, and I mean, where, where in the world do I sign up for that? And, and yet we don't talk about repentance and we don't talk about the fact that it is forsaking your old life to embrace the new. And that's what Jesus is calling you to. And that's why many sign up and they, they say they want that. And they become a follower of Christ. But somewhere along the way, obviously, it, it occurs to you that, wait, this is kind of hard. This is difficult. So I think what I'm going to do is redefine Christianity into my own little personal religion. It, it's, a, it's a cafeteria of sorts. Where if I don't like pudding, I don't have to put it on my tray. And that doesn't work. Jesus said all or nothing. And we're going to talk about that. This morning. So what is the Jesus life? What is this life that he's offering you? What does it look like? Well I want to look at three things. Three things in our text that kind of define the Jesus life. This abundant life that he's offering you. And then I want to talk about how we find it. And how we embrace it. And the first thing that kind of characterizes the Jesus life is found in the first six verses of Luke 14. And that is, it's other-centered. It's about others. We see that Jesus has compassion for others here. It says, now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. Now, we just read that and we automatically know this isn't going to go well. Jesus is going to the house of one of the religious mafia. They don't like him. And this isn't going to go well. And he gets there. And it's the Sabbath. And they're watching him closely. Which basically means. That they were looking for him. To do something they didn't like. So they could pounce on him. And make him look bad. You know picture a couple vultures. Waiting on a rabbit. To just you know. Have it's last breath. You know, the rabbit's there and it's dying and it's quivering and it's, you know, kicking its little legs. And they're waiting for that rabbit to have its last moment of life. And then they're going to go down and they're going to pounce on it, right? They're just waiting. And that's kind of what these Pharisees were doing. They were like vultures, just waiting for Jesus to do something wrong. And they were going to pounce on him. And Jesus answering, what exactly he's answering, I'm not sure because they haven't asked a question. But he knows their hearts. He knows exactly what they need to hear. He answers questions that we don't ask. 
Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So Jesus is answering the question in their hearts that they're not asking by asking a question. Jesus often does this. He'll teach by asking questions. And I think as followers of Jesus, we can learn from this. Because too often we're sort of making statements, maybe in evangelism, in our opportunities to speak with people. We're just making statements and and we're talking, but really what we learn from Jesus is that he asks a lot of questions. And and today they say that in this postmodern world we live in, people don't care about questions. I don't think that's true. I think people do have a lot of questions. And I think they want answers. And a lot of times we can address people's questions by asking questions because maybe they don't know how to articulate it. They just know there's something kind of gnawing at them. There's something they don't quite get. And we can ask questions. And that's what Jesus does. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, Jesus is obviously sort of setting them up because he's done this before. This is the third time in Luke that we've seen him healing on the Sabbath, which really ticked the Pharisees off. I don't know why it irritated them so much. It's kind of like your neighbor's dog pooping in your yard. That's, that was the Sabbath for them. It just bugged them. They didn't like it. You know, I mean, for me, that, that wouldn't be something that bugs me, you know. I mean, heal on the Sabbath all you want, but it's a culture thing for them. And it was tradition, and it irritated them. They felt like it was an affront to who they were and to their culture and to how they did things and to their tradition. And so Jesus says, look, is it lawful to do this on the Sabbath? And they kept silent because they knew the law said nothing about it. And he took him, that is this man with dropsy, and healed him and let him go. So this man comes in with dropsy, which is sort of an old King James word for a condition where your body takes on an excessive amount of fluids. And it really is sort of a symptom of a bigger problem, which is the failure of organs like the kidneys and your liver. And so this was a big deal. This was a terminal disease, and Jesus wants to heal this guy. He says, is it lawful to do it? They have nothing to say because they know it perfectly fits within the law to do it. But it didn't fit in their tradition because they valued tradition above people. And Jesus takes this man and he heals him, which means it was a complete healing. A complete healing that they would have seen and noticed. But even though they saw it and they noticed it, they didn't care. They they weren't interested in proof. They weren't interested in demonstration. What they wanted was for Jesus to be out of their life because they didn't like him. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he stood for. And they didn't like the challenge that he presented. And see, often people will say, well, I want proof of God's existence. I want him to show himself to me. And that really isn't it. What needs to happen is for people's hearts to be softened to God. And for them to really want what he's offering. Because if your heart is hardened to him, no matter 
of signs or wonders or proof or demonstration, no amount of that is going to help overcome the hardness of your heart. And it doesn't with these guys at all. And Jesus answered them again. He answers another question they aren't asking, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox, which really that word donkey is probably better translated son. And if you have an NIV or an NASB, it says son. Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And so it was acceptable even in their tradition, even in what they interpreted the law to be. It was acceptable for them that if they had an animal that had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath, that into a ditch, that had gotten into some kind of a predicament, that they could get that animal to safety. Or certainly if you have a son, a child, who is in danger, if it's the Sabbath, you're not going to be like, yeah, son, I know that um, you're hanging there by your throat in the barn, but I don't really care. It's the Sabbath, so you're, you know, we're going to have to wait till tomorrow. Sorry, can you, can you handle it? it they, that would be ridiculous. They understood that there were exceptions even to their traditions. And Jesus said, then why wouldn't you care about this man who's standing here in front of us who is dying? You see, Jesus cared more about people than he did about tradition. And he had compassion on others, And they could not answer him regarding these things. And see, that's part of the Jesus life, is having concern and care for people other than yourself. See, culture and society tells you that you're number one. Look out for number one. Care about yourself. If you don't do it, nobody else will. And, and you're, you're sort of patterned and fashioned to think that way. And to think about yourself. And then you carry that into your marriage. And it's no wonder marriages fail. Because marriage is all about being concerned about somebody other than you. Well, you, you carry this self-centered mentality into your marriage. And then all that you care about is yourself. All that you care about is your fulfillment. Whether that be emotionally or sexually you just are only concerned for yourself. And that ends in a marriage that is either A, super unhealthy, and two people living under the same roof that don't get along, and the, the only reason they stay together is for social reasons, or you, you end in divorce. That's where that leads. That's where selfishness leads. And Jesus says... That in my kingdom, in the life that I'm offering you, I'm offering you an other-centered life. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians. That Jesus, who was and is God, set aside his divine privileges, became a man, died in your place, so that you could have life. And so... Christianity at its base element is about others. And so when we try to make Christianity about us, 
We are absolutely going against the grain of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it doesn't work. And that's why there's chaos in the church when it's about me-centered religion. People come to church and nobody talked to me. People go to church and I didn't get anything out of that. People come to church, I didn't really like the worship. I didn't know the songs. Nobody invited me over. I wasn't the center of their world. And so I went to another church and then to another one until I could find a place where everybody thought that I was amazing. And made me the center of it all. Now I'm not excusing people just... Ignoring others and not even talking to new people and not being welcoming. And obviously that isn't right. It isn't good. And we strive here at Calvary Chapel to be a place that's welcoming. And that's about putting others first. But see, that's you doing that for somebody else. But when you are focused on yourself and you go into a service or anywhere in life... And, and you're complaining because you're not the center. Now you are not thinking about others anymore. And you've taken yourself out of the Jesus life. And you've put yourself into the system of the world. And so the life that Jesus is offering you is a life that's about others. It's a life that says, look, here's a guy who has a need. Who's dying. And I don't care what other people think or say. I'm going to meet this guy's needs. Because they're right in front of me. And I'm not looking around for somebody else. Who can meet this guy's needs? Hey, we've got a sign-up sheet in the foyer. There's a dude out here with dropsy, whatever that is. And uh, he needs your help. Well, dang it. Nobody signed up. This place is so selfish. Nobody cares about anybody but themselves. And Jesus is saying, like, that's a need I made known to you so that you could fulfill. Oh, that's radical. That is unbelievable because I just assumed somebody else would do it. And I mean, it, it happens in the smallest ways. This self-centeredness. And as Christians, we can enter into that. We certainly notice it. You notice it at Costco when, when you're there and it's, maybe it's Christmas season. And the place is just packed. And there's not a parking spot. And then you see some taillights. Taillights are like from heaven during Christmas season, right? They mean somebody's backing out. Or hopefully they're not parking. Because sometimes you sit there for like five minutes while the lady's gathering her stuff. Then she gets out of the car and you're like, dang it. I thought you were backing out. But the taillights, you're waiting them. And you're waiting patiently and then they back out. And then somebody comes from out of nowhere and takes your spot. I mean, you just want to kill them. Right? Because now you might have to walk an extra 15 feet into the store. I mean, what in the world? But that's just someone feeling like they're the most important person in the world. That why should I have to walk further? Or I'm in a hurry. You don't realize, but I've got to get into Costco and I've got to buy a bunch of stuff I don't need. 
I mean, seriously, I am in a hurry. Or how about on a plane? If you've, if you've flown a little bit, you know, when you land, the stewardess will get on the horn and say, please stay seated and leave your seatbelts fastened until the light goes off. But nobody listens to that. Nobody listens to anything stewardesses have to say. They're, they're just like one notch under pastors as far as people listening to them. But stewardess says that, and, and right away, selfish Sam is up. He's unbuckled, he's getting his bags out, stuff's falling on the person sitting there, doesn't even care. He's now rolling his bag down, he's bumping into people, and he's going to stand in the front of the plane. And it's like, seriously, what are you doing? Everybody else has got to get off this plane too, dude. You're not the only one. Oh, and there's other people that have close connections as well. Or how about in the, the line at the grocery store and you're standing there and you're waiting patiently for the person with 75 items that's in the express lane. Clearly marked 10 items only. 10 items or less and there they are. You're waiting. And then the lady comes out of the break room and she takes her little clothes sign down and she says, hey, I'll help the next person. And there's somebody behind you who assumes that next means them. Although you've been waiting patiently for dude with 75 items, now they go and they check them out. And you know what drives me insane about that the most? Is that the checkers never say anything. They don't care. I guess it's like, fin for yourself, right? It's like, what about next? Don't you understand? I'm next. But even that feeling in and of itself is selfishness. It's putting yourself first. But certainly the person behind you that knows you're next, that cuts you off, they're being selfish. And we just live in a culture of selfishness and narcissism that cares only about self. And it leads to all kinds of other destructive habits and consequences. And so the first thing about the Jesus life is that it's other-centered. Jesus had compassion on this man. Do do you have compassion for other people? Do do you feel people's hurt and their needs? Does it break your heart? It should. Because when Jesus is living inside of you, and when he's consuming you, and he's captured your heart, His focus on others will become your focus. And that's why Jesus said you can really sum up the law in its entirety by loving God with all of your heart and then loving others as yourself. So that vertical relationship, when it's in order, then it looks a lot like an other-centered life horizontally. And so someone that says, man, I love Jesus, and they're praising him, and they've got, you know, the Christian t-shirt, and, and, the, and the whole package, the bumper sticker, and they've got the lingo down, but there's no love for others, then you have to question whether this is there. Because this is demonstrated by this. Jesus said, if you love me, 
then love others. How can you say, John said in 1 John, how can you say you love God whom you've never seen and not love your neighbor who you're staring in the face? It's hypocrisy. The way that you show and demonstrate your love for God is by loving other people. We talked about that a lot last summer. I don't know if you remember that. But we were talking a lot about that last summer. And the, the demonstration of your love for God is how you treat other people. Think about that. The demonstration of your love for God is not how many Christian CDs you own. It's not about how many Bible verses you have memorized. Or how many Sundays in a row you've been in attendance at church. Or your service. All those things are, are cool. Except for maybe the Christian CDs. That, that might be the only thing I'd take issue with. But beyond that, everything else is cool. But if there's no love for people, then you've got nothing. You have an absolutely empty religion. A self-focused, self-help program is what you have. Christianity is about others. The second thing that we see about the Jesus-centered life, about Jesus' life that he's offering to you, is that it's defined by humility. It's defined by a a humility that leads to exaltation. Starting in verse 7, it says, So he told a parable to those who were invited. Those who were invited to this man's house, this Pharisee's house. He begins to tell them a story. When he noted how they chose the best places... And so he noted that everybody was coming in and they wanted the best place. And the way that it was set up at that time, we've got to get Western hospitality out of our mind for a second. You know, none of this like, you know, ladies off in the dining room, husbands out in the bonus room with the big screen. You got to get that out of your mind for a minute. And think about a U-shaped couch, a U-shaped seating area where the host, the one that invited everybody, sits in the middle. And then the most honorable seats are to the left and to the right. That's why James and John, their mom actually, came to Jesus and said, Hey, can my boys sit on your left and your right in heaven? She wanted them to have the place of prominence, place of notoriety. And that's what it was. And Jesus noticed that these dudes were coming in to the house and they were jockeying for position. Who could get closest to the host? Who would be the one that everybody would notice? Because when you sat in the place of honor, I mean, everybody's looking at you. Everybody's like, wow, that guy, he's important. And that's what you want. I mean, everybody wants to be important. Everybody wants to be known as somebody who's close to someone who's important. And it's, a, it's certainly a social illustration that Jesus is giving. He's, he's teaching us about status in our society. But there's also a spiritual implication that we'll talk about as well. But Jesus noted that they chose the best places, that they exalted themselves. There was no humility. There was no, hey man, why don't you take the best seat? You're much more important than I am. Why don't you sit here? No, that everybody wanted the best for themselves. And Jesus said, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. So when you're invited to a wedding feast and everybody's sitting around and the host is there and the seat next to him is open, don't go and sit in that seat. Sit a few down. 
Because it's much better that he would invite you up than for you to have to be asked to move. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. And so it's a real bummer if you're sitting there and everybody's eyes are on you and everybody's saying, man, this guy's so important. Amazing. And then all of a sudden, the host is like, hey, what are you doing? Can you move? Somebody a lot more important than you is coming. And then you feel like an idiot. You, you have to move. You have to walk around. Everybody's staring at you, snickering. And then now you have to sit in the lowest seat because it's the only one available. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place right away. Just sit in the lowest place. Take the place of humility so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, hey, friend, go up higher. Come on, bro. You need to be sitting in a better seat, man. What are you doing? Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Now, what Jesus isn't promoting is a false humility so that you can be exalted. What Jesus is giving is an illustration of humility just in general. That you aren't concerned about having the best for yourself. That you're not concerned about prominence in the eyes of men. That you don't really care what people think. That's kingdom-minded. That's the Jesus life. Because think about Jesus. Here he is, the creator of the universe. He's born in a barn. He's born into a family that has no money, no social status. His dad's a blue-collar worker. He, he was born in a redneck town that everybody despised. What good can come out of Nazareth? I mean, if you had your choice of the family you were going to be born into, the city, your last name, I mean, it's like, hey, I want Trump, I want Manhattan, I want superior athletic ability. But Jesus had the choice of where he would be born, of who he would be born to, and he chose the lowest place. But as his followers, somehow we think that it's about exalting ourselves, And that doesn't make sense. That's going along with the culture, but it's being counterculture to Christianity. It's going against the grain of what Jesus is offering us. Yeah, it's going with the flow of the world. It makes sense to the world to exalt yourself, to sit in the best seat. But in Jesus' kingdom, it's absolutely contrary. And if you want to be a Jesus follower, that means that you have to actually follow Jesus. I know, it's crazy. But we have to actually do what he does. And that goes way beyond a wristband that says WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, that might be a cool reminder for you, but we already know what he would do. There's a lot of things we already know that he would do that, that you aren't doing. And there's a lot of things we know he wouldn't do that you are doing. And so begin to, to embrace the Jesus life, which is other-centered, which is hum, promoting humility. That's what Jesus is asking of us. For whoever, verse 11, exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the key verse in this section in talking about humility. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. God will humble you. You can exalt yourself, but God's going to humble you. Maybe not in this life. Because maybe you're thinking, well, man, there's a lot of guys that, that exalt themselves. There's a lot of gals who are just full of themselves and it seems to be working. Well, for now. 
But there will be a reckoning. And there will be humility that will be brought as they are crushed under the rock that is Jesus Christ. And they will confess Him as their Lord. But if you humble yourself and notice that's your responsibility. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray for humility, but I am kind of saying that it really isn't something you need to pray for. It's just something you need to do. It's already there. You just need to identify with Jesus and get close to Jesus. And when you do, the natural response is humility. It's like when you hang out with someone who's really, really intelligent. Not me. If you hang out with me, you just I sort of suck brain cells out of you. But it's kind of like listening to country music. My, my daughter's been listening to a little bit of country lately. I don't know where she picked that up. And it's got to be the Powell Butte School because everything is about cowboys. And like everything, you know. If you're going to have a banana split day, it's in a cowboy hat. You know, everything, it's about cowboys. But she's listening to country. I said, Caitlin, country music will suck the brain cells out of you. Well, some people do that. But other people, you're with them and it's like, you just feel like, man, this guy, this gal is so smart. I'm not going to argue with them. They might even say to you, did you know that two plus two is five? You're not arguing with them at all because you know they're just brilliant and it brings a sense of humility to you. Or if you're with a really, really top-notch athlete, just someone who's just an amazing athlete, you're not going to be telling them about the touchdown pass you threw in fourth grade. You know, you're not going to be, you know, bragging about how you can throw that ball over them mountains, you know. You're not going to be doing that. It's just not going to happen because you recognize that this person is, is amazing and it brings humility. You guys, when we hang out with Jesus, it brings humility. So you see how ridiculous it is to say, hey God, would you humble me because I'm so amazing. It's really, really hard for me to be humble. And God's saying like, if you would just get close to me, it would just be a natural byproduct. It would just happen. You would be humbled. But because we're not close to him, because we're not experiencing him, we get this self-inflated view, start hanging out with Jesus, and humility is a byproduct. Then he said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. Now Jesus isn't saying never invite them. He's saying that that ought not be the only people you invite. Because you should be inviting the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. They're not exactly on the who's who of your guest list. It's, those aren't the names you're dropping at work. These are people that when you invite them over, you actually get flack for it. You might even have people making fun of you for it. And see, this starts in school, like in kindergarten, it's really important who you're friends with and your kids come home from school and, and they're sad because nobody wants to hang out with them or maybe they, they, they talk in such a way that you realize that they're pretty popular and that they only hang out with certain kids and you're concerned about it. And that starts there and it goes all the way through and it gets really ugly in junior high and high school. And then you assume that now I'm an adult and I don't do that anymore, but you do, you just mask it differently. You don't really admit it, but you're finding your identity in who you know and who you hang out with. And there's no way I'm hanging out with the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. They're not cool. They drag me down. 
and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. When's the last time you hung out with somebody that could offer you nothing in return? They could offer you no social status. They could offer you no invite back to their house. They couldn't offer you the big screen TV you don't have. They couldn't offer you sweet hunting spots. They're not a hairstylist who's going to give you free haircuts and manicures. And They can offer you nothing. When was the last time you hung out with someone like that? When was the last time you had them over knowing that they're not going to ever invite you to their house? And in fact, they're going to make this particular dinner or event very difficult because they're difficult people. And I remember growing up, my mom was just amazing at this and I hated it. I hated it as a kid. And as a teenager, she for every holiday meal, I was driving somewhere to pick up some weirdo to bring to our house for a meal. I, I, you know, she'd be like, okay, we're, you know that bag lady that walks up and down the highway and almost gets ran over all the time? Yeah, we make fun of her and stuff. Yeah, I want you to go pick her up and bring her to the house. We're having her over for, come on, mom, she's gonna, she stinks. And she's gonna ruin everything. Plus she like mumbles and stuff. And it's just not going to be fun. It's going to ruin everything. Go over, have to knock on her door. The, the smell would about knock you out when the door opened. Living in just some shack in the woods. And it was those lessons that were huge for me as a kid. Just thinking like, this, this is what Jesus did. I don't really like it, but I'm pretty sure my mom is in a good place and I'm not. And, and that's what it's about. Because they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection. Now, I'm certain that I lost all my rewards for those trips, picking people up and bringing them to my house. There's no rewards going on for me. But my mom's got tons. And what are you doing that's storing up treasure in heaven that is promoting humility, not exalting yourself? That's the Jesus life. That's the life that he's offering to you. The last characteristic of the Jesus life that I want to look at before we look at how do we find this life is found in verses 15 to 24 and that is that it's a kingdom that it's a real kingdom you guys a real place please don't think of Jesus's kingdom as something that you can't conceive of or that you can't grab a hold of that isn't real because it is real and it has a king and you're its citizens and he's in wanting you, he's compelling you to invite more people into his kingdom and his kingdom has structure and it has responsibility and it has privileges and it has blessings and it has rules and guidelines and it's an amazing place. And that's what he has for you. It's not some far away thing that you can't conceive of. It's not Lord of the Rings. It's not even Narnia as much as C.S. Lewis was trying to show the kingdom of God in, in, in his imagination. But let's not perceive it that way. It's real. And it's among us. And it's here. And it's also now. It's happening. And it will happen. And you can embrace that if you choose to. The kingdom that Jesus has is open to everyone. That's part of the Jesus life. That his kingdom is open to everyone. We looked at it last week. The gate is narrow. It's not wide. It's narrow. Few find it, but it is open to everyone. It's not easy to get into it. 
It takes forsaking all, but it is open. And it's available. And it's open to everyone. Which is really counterculture to how we've grown up. Because in our life, we've been told that certain people are the haves and certain people are the have-nots. Some people got it and other people don't. And maybe you're one of these that basically has conceded the fact that you're a have-not, that you don't have it, that you don't got it, and you've given up. And Jesus says to you, it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter your intelligence. It doesn't matter your athletic ability. I accept you. I love you. I value you. And when you can begin to embrace that, then what people say about you becomes completely irrelevant. The kingdom of God is open to everyone. That's the Jesus life. It says, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him. So here's a guy, he's kicking back, he's listening to Jesus, and he's thinking to himself, this guy is ruining our party. This is a party. Jesus is sort of talking and insulting the host and challenging the guests. And this guy figures, I'm going to rescue the party. Have you ever been in a place where it's just going downhill fast? Somebody is ruining the party. And and in a sense, it's what Jesus is doing. Now, he has the right to do it because he's God. Don't you be one that's ruining the party by being obnoxious and weird. But Jesus can do it because he's cool and he's God and he's our savior and he's our creator. That's what he's doing. And this guy's getting a little bit freaked out about it. And he's like, man, I've got to rescue this thing. So he says, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's kind of like, hey, man, mellow out. We're all going to be there. It's going to be cool. I don't know what you're talking about, but it seems like you're kind of putting us down here. And we're all going to be there. So pipe down. And Jesus doesn't miss a beat, which is what I absolutely love about Jesus. He doesn't even say to the guy, you know, you're absolutely wrong about that. He just kind of ignores him. And he said, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. So he just uses it as a, as a segue. You've got to love Jesus. This is classic. He just like uses that. He's like, yeah, that reminds me of something else. There's a certain man. He had a great supper. He invited a lot of people. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. In this culture, you didn't go to an event unless you were invited twice. You got your initial invitation, and then you would kind of send back an RSVP. They didn't call it that, because I think that's French, and there was no French. But you send back saying, yeah, I'm coming. I'm going to be there. And then they would make preparations based on how many people said they were going to be there. Then on the day of, you would send your servant out to knock on doors and all those that said they were coming to personally invite them. And it was just sort of a courtesy. And if you didn't get that personal invite, you probably wouldn't go because that would be looked at as rude. But if you didn't accept the personal invite after you already said you were going initially, that was really rude. And so servant goes out, which in this story, the host represents God the Father. The servant represents Jesus. So Jesus goes out and he invites those that have already been invited into his kingdom. Things are ready. Come on. The feast, man. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Now, there are people that have bought houses and stuff without ever looking at them, but it's pretty rare. So it's kind of weird to say, hey, I just bought a piece of land and I need to go look at it. That's 
either A, irresponsible, or B, you're just flat out lying. Either way, it's an excuse. It's just saying, I don't really want to go. I know I said I did, but I've changed my mind. Look, I bought a piece of land the other day. I got to go look at it. And is it not going to be there tomorrow? Is it going somewhere? Is it going to float away? And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. This guy's going to buy ten oxen, five teams of oxen. He's already bought them. In fact, he's purchased them. Now he says, I want to test them out. Really? You bought ten oxen, and you haven't tested them out? That'd be like buying ten brand new vehicles and never having driven them, don't know what they drive like, nothing. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, again, another excuse. Even if he hadn't done that, those oxen aren't going anywhere. You could test them after the party. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So apparently, like, you're married, and now you're going to stay at home until you die. You can't go anywhere? What's, that's weird. So these, these are all excuses because they don't want to go. They just have no desire to go. So what they should have said is, look, I don't want to be there. No desire. Thank you. But they make excuses. And many people make excuses about why they don't want to follow God. Oh, I'm too young. I'm too busy. Too old. Whatever the excuse might be. Jesus said, those excuses aren't going to cut it. The servant came and reported these things to, to the master. Jesus goes to God the Father, master of the house, and he's angry. And he said to Jesus, to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. And so there was the initial invitation, and they rejected it. And so then they were rejected so that the least among them could be invited. And that's why Jesus said, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now directly, he was talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. He's saying, look, you Jewish brothers and sisters, you were invited You are only a child of Abraham, though, in so much as that you have the faith of Abraham. And so your nationality isn't going to cut it. You need to come to God through me, through Jesus. And they rejected that. And the door was closed for them. And then the door was opened for the Gentiles. And that's why Paul went out and he planted churches and he did evangelism amongst the Gentiles. And that's why we've seen the church and its history be primarily Gentile in nature. Now, that doesn't mean that the Jews cannot be saved because they are coming to Christ, but it means that there, there was a, a blindness of sorts. There, there was an opportunity for them to embrace Jesus when he was there on the earth, and they rejected that, and they hardened their heart to that, and Jesus then opened the door for everyone. So that's the direct application The indirect application for our lives is that the kingdom of God is open to everyone. And so that ought to change the way we view people. It ought to change the way you view those who the world says are outcasts, who are not important, who aren't valuable. Maybe you went through this exercise 
as a, as a student. Basically, the teacher would say, pretend that you're in a lifeboat, and there are 12 people in the lifeboat. The, the ship has sank, it's gone. You're now in the lifeboat, and there's 12 of you. And some of you are really smart, and some of you, well, let's just say, aren't so smart. Some of you are really gifted and talented, and others aren't. Some of you are amazingly attractive physically, and others of you, you know, mud fence. That's the lifeboat. There, there's, there's 12 of you in there, and basically it's the haves and the have-nots. Then it's presented to the class. Who do you throw out? Who do you keep? Because you can only keep six people in the lifeboat because there's only enough resources for six people. So six people have to go. So who are you going to keep? Well, naturally, you think, I'm going to keep the, the smart, the beautiful, the famous, the talented, the gifted. Get rid of the others, like natural selection. And it's this exercise of ethics, of who you would keep and who you would kill based upon, solely upon, their looks, their money, their giftedness. And it really is an illustration of life. Because life is a lot like that lifeboat. There's the haves and the have-nots. And pretty much, by about fourth or fifth grade, you're figuring out really fast if you're a have or a have-not. If your parents have money, then you're a have. If they're poor, you're a have-not. Well, my parents don't have money, but I'm smoking hot. So now, I'm a half, and all the guys want me. But man, if your parents don't have money and you're not smoking hot, it's not good. Parents don't have money, not smoking hot, but I'm really smart. So I got to go to whatever college I wanted to, and I got all kinds of scholarships, and people respect me because I'm really smart, and they cheat on my papers, off my papers, and they like me, and I I get some value from that. But I had no money, no looks, no smarts. And for girls, maybe athletics, but it doesn't get you very far. But even if you're not that attractive, there's still guys that want to sleep with you, so I can find some value in that. And so I just slept with everybody that I could because there was value in that. And I felt important and I felt like guys were paying attention to me. And for guys, if you have none of those things going for you and you don't have athletics, well, you're not getting a girl. So you might as well forget that. You you know, girls can get a guy because guys just want it. But you're not getting a girl. Forget it. It's over. So what do you have to turn to? Well, some guys become weird and they start playing Dungeons and Dragons and dress all in black. (laughs) <laughs> You're laughing because it's so real, right? And, and other guys become identified by the kind of music they listen to. And, you know, I'm the, when, I was in, when I was in high school, you know, it was the stoners. I'm a stoner. That's where I find my identity. Really? Because you wear black and you like Metallica and you do drugs. But there's identity in that because there's other people like me. And we sit over in the corner and we don't eat. We don't talk to anybody else. We just play Dungeons and Dragons, we listen to Metallica, and we smoke meth. It's killer. There's identity in that, though. Meanwhile, the girl is sleeping around, and she's trying to find identity in that. And meanwhile, the the other guy, his parents are rich, and he's finding identity in that because he gets to drive cool cars and wear nice clothes, but he knows he's empty, and it means nothing. And he knows the only reason people hang out with him is because his parents have money. And in the back of his mind, he's saying, but what about, like, me? You don't really like me. You just like what I have. But he doesn't want to admit that because then he would lose his status. And then there's the athlete who knows he's not good enough 
probably even to get a college scholarship, and he knows his fame and his glory is going to end in high school. Maybe at best he'll go to college. And even if he's good enough to go to the pros, he knows in the back of his mind that somewhere, at some point, it's all going to end. And that's why you got guys like Michael Jordan and Brett Favre that retire and then unretire because they find their identity in that, in the crowd cheering, in the people saying, you're amazing, because it's the have and the have-nots. And you find out about that real early on. And maybe some of you a long time ago found out you're a have-not. just don't have it. And maybe you turned to illicit sexual behavior. You, you turned to the 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 pursuit of something bigger than yourself, something that would give you meaning, something that would give you value, whatever that is, whether it's following some band around or whether it is joining a cause and just being so passionate about that cause because I find identity in that. It's the only place that I have actually found identity. And some of you turn to alcohol and to drugs Because it was the only way that you could escape the reality that you have been tossed out of the lifeboat. That's why people commit suicide. That's why people destroy their lives in any number of things. And at some point, you have to realize and you come to a place that you say, the sex isn't fulfilling me. The drugs are destroying me. The alcohol is ruining my life. The pursuit of other things has left me empty. I mean... I don't even want to go to one more party because they're just not fulfilling. And Jesus is saying, I've got so much more for you. I'm offering you real purpose, real meaning, real identity. And when you find that in him, then the pursuit of finding that in other things doesn't even appeal to you anymore. And what people say about you and think about you doesn't matter. And you're not trying to chase down popularity and hoping that people think that you are the bomb. What does that person think of me? And what did they say about me? And, and just wanting to find identity in what other people think. And it's empty. And I mean, it's a temptation for all of us. And all of the things that we do in this life to classify people and to put people into a box, all of those things that we do to characterize people, whether it be racism or sexism or not liking someone because of how they dress or who they hang out with or what kind of vehicle they drive. All of those things that we do to categorize ourselves and to make ourselves feel like I've got identity. That's what racism is. It's saying, I'm white, therefore I'm better than you. And all of us white people can get together and say how we're better than, than other people. Because it's where I found identity. And the opposite can happen with, with black people. And they congregate together and they find their identity in their street cred or sexism. I'm a man, therefore I'm better than you. Because I'm a man. And all of that is is finding your identity in something other than Jesus. And it's all empty. And it all leads to discouragement, to despondency, to despair, and ultimately to destruction. Jesus is saying, find your identity in me. And that begins to change how you treat other people. Because now you put those glasses on and you view the world differently. And now you see that person who's just an arrogant jerk. Now you see them and you recognize they're just trying to find identity. 
They're just trying to find meaning for their life. And by insulting me, they think that they're going to find that. And see, when you see that and you notice that, it changes how you feel about that person and your anger gets turned into compassion. And it changes how you feel about your neighbors who are up partying all night and you hate them. You just can't stand them. You wish they didn't live there anymore. But now you realize they're, they're finding their identity in something other than Jesus and it breaks your heart and you want to reach out to them. And it changes how you view the world as a Christian. No longer are you wanting to flee from the world. You're wanting to engage the world because you have something so much better to offer them. And so now it's not, let's get my kids out of this hellhole school. Now it's, I want to engage that school. I I want them to see Jesus. Now I'm not saying that you can't homeschool, but you don't do it out of paranoia. You don't do it because you're rescuing your kids from the clutches of evil. We're called to be in the world and not of the world. The way that we're going to impact and influence this world is by engaging it, living in it, like Jesus did. And Jesus said, I called the poor and the lame and the maimed and the blind, those that nobody else cared about, that's who I care about. But why doesn't the church care about them? Because we've created our own little subculture with our own music and our own books and our own art and our own way of talking and our own buildings in our own separate bubble that nobody is going to intrude upon unless you become just like me and us and you have to believe like me to belong. Where Jesus says, hey, come and belong. Come and be a part of it and then I'm going to show you why you should believe. See, that's what it means to be on mission. Not dress like me, talk like me, act like me, read like me, listen to music like me appreciate everything that I appreciate about life, then you can belong. No. What the church should be saying is, come and belong. All your idiosyncrasies, all your weirdness, all your quirks, bring them in. Bring in your sin too. We're not going to let you feel comfortable in your sin, but we're never going to give you the impression that you're not welcome because of your sin. And what we hope is that you'll repent, that you'll turn And that you'll follow Jesus. But sadly, we've isolated ourselves and insulated ourselves from the world. And we've created our own subculture that the world looks on and says, I don't want to have any part of that. It's judgmental. It's hypocritical. It's not real. And most of the time, it's a knockoff of what they're already doing, which is, in my mind, so sad. On one hand, it angers me. On the other hand, it saddens me that we're taking the, the things of the culture We're putting our Christian twist on it and slapping it onto a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. And so instead of Abercrombie and Fitch, it's a breadcrumb and a fish. Is that that what Jesus is calling us to? Is Jesus calling us to take the slogans and the logos of our culture and twist them to fit Jesus into them and then say, but we don't want to have any part of the world? Has he been waiting for millennia for Nike to come out with their new slogan so that we can rip it off and twist it to make it fit into Christianity? Stupid. Redonkulous. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be engaging the culture, you guys. We should be taking Jesus and making a difference by being different. We don't have to come up with our own little cool culture 
and our own cool music and our own cool art to draw them in. Aren't they going to love our knockoffs? No, they're not because they've got it better. But what we can do is we can engage them with meaning and purpose in life, finding their identity in Jesus. And that applies to everybody, the haves and the have-nots. And Jesus is saying, go take my message to everybody, including the have-nots, including those people that you want to rescue yourself from. Go take it to them, that neighbor, that family member, who you think, I don't want to have anything to do with them. They're weird. They're involved in, in a lifestyle I don't agree with. They're gross. They're immoral. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Now, I'm not saying go and throw yourself headlong into that lifestyle. I'm not saying that you need to go down to the bar and tie one on to engage those people. I'm saying that you need to reach out to them. They could care less if you drink or not. That's not what you need to do. Hey, man, see me? I got a Budweiser. Yeah, I'm cool. That's, that's not going to make a difference. What's going to make a difference is you loving them and you showing them that they're valuable and that they're important and that you care about them. And those kids that you don't like and you, you tell your kids, you're not playing with them. You are not going to their house. Now listen, I'm not saying drop your kids off at Chester the Molesters. You don't, you know, use wisdom. Don't just let your kids run up and down the street. You know, it's summertime right now. It amazes me. Six, seven-year-old kids rollerblading at nine o'clock at night. It's crazy. I, I'm not saying that you should do that. What I'm saying is, is that you invite those kids to your house. And you say, hey, come on over. I want to fix you lunch. I want to put a slip and slide in my backyard. You can run through the sprinklers. Hey, I've got some activities and games we can play. You guys want to watch a movie? And you bring them over to your house and you show them some normal life. Because what they are involved in is chaos and abuse. And rather than saying, I don't care about you because I don't want my kids to be influenced by you, you say, I do care about you. I love you. I don't approve of what's happening, but I want to show you as much love as I can. Rather than continuing to go on in your own little isolated world while your neighbor is cooking meth or abusing their kids and you don't even care. It's sad. Because Jesus cares. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you want Jesus' life, then you should care. You should care a lot. Because that's your mission. It's what you're called to. You're not better than they are. You're a beggar showing the other beggars where the bread's at. That's it. That's all we have. We've got to get the lifeboat mentality out of the church. Because Jesus is opposed to it. He hates it. He died. Because of that kind of mentality. He died because that is the result of the fall. It's part of our sin nature. And we have to live counterculture to that. Why don't we? Well, we don't because we have to reject everything that seems right to us. Everything that comes natural to us. We have to reject that and live for Him. It says, great multitudes went with Him and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus has multitudes, huge crowds following him. I mean, momentum is being gathered. If you're his PR guy, you're like, hey, this is the time. Capitalize. We're going to sell some records. we got a book contract. It's big time. 
Don't screw this up. First thing out of his mouth. Hey, if you don't hate your family and yourself, you're not my disciple. Hey, that's not what I wrote. That wasn't the press release, Jesus. What are you doing? What he's doing is he's not telling you to hate people. He's not even telling you to hate yourself. Because Jesus told us to love our enemies. So, I mean, maybe your brothers and your sisters and your father and mother, maybe they are your enemies. Maybe these are the same people. But regardless of that, he told us to love our enemies. So how much more should we love our family? So he's not saying hate people. He's using a comparative statement. Literally, it means to love less. Jesus is saying, in comparison to your love for me, you should hate everybody else, and you should hate yourself. But see, we idolize our children, we idolize ourselves. we put people on pedestals, and Jesus is somewhere down here. And he's saying it shouldn't be that way. You need to forsake all, including your family, including yourself, and follow me. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is the cross? Is that like a cool piece of jewelry? No, it's death to self. Take up your cross. The dude that used to travel the country with the cross with a wheel on the bottom of it, I can't remember his name. I mean, the guy's kind of cool. You got to hand it to him. He'd hitchhike, get picked up, preach at people, then get dropped off, walk a little bit more, hitchhike, preach. I mean, that's kind of cool. But that's not what Jesus meant by take up your cross and follow me. What if everybody did that? It'd be, it'd be ridiculous, right? We're all just like, eh, eh, eh. So, I mean, he was, maybe he was called to that, I don't know. But what it means is death to self. It means that I take the cross and I make it the center of my life. The cross-centered life. Which means I'm out of the picture. And so, literally, it's not a cliche to say it's not about me. That's not cliche, it's true. And so, it makes me evaluate my complaining. It makes me evaluate when people aren't treating me the way I feel like they should. It makes me evaluate when somebody says something to me that I take offensively. Why do I take it offensively? Because I'm finding meaning and value and identity in what they say about me. And how dare you, how dare you insult me? And so now we're going to fight. Because I'm going to prove to you that I'm better than you. I'm going to prove to you that what you just said about me is not true. Right? That's the way it goes down. Because I want to find my meaning and value and identity in other people. And Jesus says, don't do it. Die to that. Leave it behind. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? You're going to build a building. This word tower could be translated like a farm building, like a barn. You're going to, you're going to build a barn. But you don't have a budget, nothing. Come to find out the foundation was a lot more expensive than you thought. Now you're out of money. And he lays the foundation, he's not able to finish, and all who see it begin to mock him, like, dude, all you have is a foundation, you didn't budget anything out, you're an idiot. And people snicker, you know, you, you have neighbors that try to build stuff and then can't finish, and it's sort of the talk of the neighborhood. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet he who comes against him with 20,000? So you're a king, you hear there's a, a contingent of soldiers coming at you, 20,000 strong. And you're like, well, man, I've only got 10. Are we going to be able to win? Because that's really what it's all about. I mean, I don't want to put my kingdom in jeopardy. So can I win with 10 against 20? And if you can't, then you would send a great way off a delegation and ask for conditions of peace. Say, look, 
we're, we're way less talented militarily than you are. You guys are awesome. We submit. You win. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's about counting the cost. Many people, maybe some of you, decided to follow Jesus, but you didn't forsake all. And you're wondering, why does this feel so weird? Why, why is this not working? Why do I feel so out of place? I mean, in the world, I don't feel right. In the church, I don't feel right. I'm not as excited about Jesus as other people. I'm not growing. I read the Bible. It doesn't make sense to me. And it's because you haven't forsaken all. You haven't totally left the old you behind. You've thought, I can just take Jesus in and incorporate him into my present life. And it doesn't work. It's kind of like if you've been out working, doing some manual labor, and, and you're, maybe you've been in the garden or digging ditches or out mowing the yard or doing some kind of physical activity, and you're sweaty and you're dirty, and you come home and you want to put on some clean clothes. Well, you don't just get some clothes out of the closet and put them on the dirty clothes. Maybe if you're super lazy, that's what you do, but it doesn't help. You still feel gross. You still stink. You need to take off the clothes. You need to get in the shower. You need to receive the cleansing flow of the water. But see, some of you, you recognized that you were dirty. You recognized that you were filthy from this world. And you wanted new clothes. And you recognize that it's found in Christ. So you put on Jesus, but you put him on right over your old stuff. And so when people encounter you, they see Jesus, but then there's sort of a stench. And it's kind of like, I, I see Jesus, I, I know that he's there, but there's this funk. There's this something about you that's not right. There's something there that just doesn't fit. I, I just can't put my finger on it, but man, there's a stench. And see, you've, you've got your old clothes, and maybe you figured it out after a while that you, you know, you've got to hide them really well. Maybe you've got them shoved into the back pockets of the new clothes, and once in a while you even put them on over the the new clothes, just to try them out again, just to see what it's like. And then, and then you realize they still stink. And what Jesus is saying to you is take off the old clothes. Put them away. Put on Christ. Receive the cleansing flow of his blood that brings forgiveness and grace. And it's where you find meaning and identity in this life. And quit trying to find it somewhere else. Forsake all. See, it isn't that God is saying to you, I want you to get rid of everything in your life that you've ever enjoyed because I don't want you to have any kind of fun. And that's the way it, it kind of is presented sometimes. But what it is is God saying, I want you to get rid of all the garbage and all the crap. Put it away so that you can have my life in its fullest. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Once salt has lost its saltiness, it's worthless. It's very valuable before that for preserving and protecting. They would even put it on their manure piles to slow down the decomposition process so that they could have fertilizer for years to come. But once that salt has lost its saltiness, its seasoning, it's not good for food. It's not good for protecting and preserving. It's not even good for the poop pile to make it last longer. It's worthless. 
And that's what happens to the Christian who has lost his identity in Christ. You become a person who can't enjoy the world because you have too much Jesus. And you can't enjoy Jesus because you have too much of the world. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you have ears this morning to hear what God is saying to you? To hear what Jesus is wanting to do in your life? He has amazing plans for you. He has purpose and meaning and fulfillment for you. Will you find it in him? Do you know that Jesus has the best possible life for you? Do you know that? And if you do, why aren't you experiencing it? Why aren't you enjoying the life that he has? It's up to you. You guys, find your meaning, your identity in Jesus. Nothing else matters. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. God, we thank you for just the things you're speaking to us. God, the work that you're doing in each of us. God, it's just so awesome to see lives changing. And God, to see people putting off the old and embracing the new. And God, I pray this morning for those that don't know you, those that are just saying, man, I, I want that, but I don't know that I, that I have it. I don't know that I've ever received that. Lord, I pray right now that they would want the life that you're offering them, that they would want forgiveness, that they would want fulfillment and meaning and purpose, that, Lord, they would just simply say to you, God, I know that I'm a sinner. God, I know that I've been finding my worth in things other than you. And Lord, I I don't want that anymore. God, I want you. Jesus, I want to be forgiven. I want to be cleansed. Jesus, I want the life that you've created for me because you created all things good. And now you're giving me the opportunity to return to that place of your original created goodness. And so Lord, redeem me. God, restore me back to that place that you intended me to be. And it's only in Jesus. And I recognize that and I confess him as my Lord and my Savior this morning. God, I want to pray for those who do know you, but who have been finding their identity and their worth in in things other than you. Lord, who have not been experiencing the Jesus life and they're tired of it. Lord, they're tired of being clothed with Christ right over the top of the the old man, the old stinky clothes. Lord, I pray this morning that you would undress us, that God, you would take away all the old, stanky, stinky stuff, and God, you would put it away, and you would clothe us in Christ, Lord. We want to identify with the new man. God, we cry out for that. We forsake all. We take up our cross, and we follow you afresh and anew today. And Lord, may we take the gospel, the most amazing message ever, to the lost and dying world around us, Lord, to the highways, to the byways, to the least among us, to the lowly, to the despised, to the outcast. God, may we not hole ourselves up in the church, making our own subculture, but God, may we go out and engage the culture, the alcoholics, the perverts, the homosexuals, God. God, the those that are ruining their lives with drugs. God, those that are addicted to sex. God, those who are absolutely destroying themselves by finding their identity in something other than you. And God, we have the message that will unlock all of the mysteries of life, all that they've been pursuing. Lord, compel us to go to them. 
as beggars showing other beggars where the bread's at. God, do that work in us. We won't settle any longer for mediocrity. We won't settle any longer for going through the motions and not being on mission with you, God. Forgive us. God, we repent. We turn from that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, you may do so at our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Once again, thank you for listening, and God bless.